Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. More MPs call for a ceasefire as the Israel-Hamas war reverberates on Parliament Hill. Our journalist panel breaks it down. Canada remains firm and steadfast in our commitment to a two-state solution. Canada still committed to a two-state solution as Gaza waits for essential supplies. We get the latest analysis from a former ambassador to Israel. And the U.S. president is linking Middle East violence to the war in Ukraine. A former top American diplomat tells us why it matters. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson, in for Michael Serapio. 33 MPs have signed an open letter to the Prime Minister. They want an immediate ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. More than 20 of those MPs are Liberal. And Justin Trudeau is facing questions today about a possible caucus divide over the Canadian response. Canadians of all backgrounds who are represented in Parliament are reflecting the very real fears and concerns that everyone has. So yeah, there are lots of different perspectives, but there are shared fears and concerns uh, amongst all parliamentarians and a commitment every single day to keep everyone safe here in Canada and everywhere around the world. Let's welcome our Friday journalist panel now. Alex Ballingall of the Toronto Star, Nick Taylor-Vasey of Politico, and Christy Kirkup of the Globe and Mail. Christy, we start with the Prime Minister. We just heard him uh, referring to what your paper and others have been reporting, that there is uh, dissent within the Liberal caucus over how the government is handling the Israel-Hamas war. And now we do have this letter with 33 MPs, including Liberals, New Democrats, and Greens, all calling for a ceasefire, explicitly saying that needs to be Canadian policy. What do you make of how the situation in the Middle East is reverberating on Parliament Hill right now? Well, I think we see that the Prime Minister is, we we saw him come out in the House of Commons and make some comments earlier this week where I think he was trying to be very careful in his language. He talked about Israel's right to defend itself. He also called Hamas a terrorist organization. But then at the end of his comments, he talked about the fact that um, international law and humanitarian law apply everywhere, including in Gaza. And he talked about essentially that uh, Palestinian people um, are, are seeking a better future for themselves. So I think he was very careful in that language. Clearly behind the scenes, again, he was getting pressure and can the, the Globe uh, reported as much. There was uh, you know a meeting that was held and, and some strong views that were shared. And then I think this is just, this letter is just another step further um, to underscore the pressure that the Prime Minister is facing that Canada is facing in terms of how it is handling uh, the situation in the Middle East. And Nick, there has been some political consensus. We saw the party leaders speaking at a conference on anti-Semitism early this week, but we do have the situation where we do have some MPs calling for a ceasefire. Conservatives are obviously not calling for a ceasefire and uh, government not calling for a ceasefire yet. What's your take here? Well, it was a remarkable show of unity that first day, October 7th, 8th, and then into the 9th, into the, the start of that first week after the weekend attack. Um, and it was perhaps not unprecedented, but it was certainly notable. 
but then the conversation both in Canada and internationally starts to turn to all of the people involved in this region uh, and naturally gets to that point. And at a certain point, if you're a Liberal MP, if you're a New Democratic MP, you're going to want to voice what you really feel or what your constituents are telling you or what your, your colleagues in caucus are telling you. Maybe they're persuading you, giving you a perspective you, you hadn't had on an issue that, of course, people have thought about for years and years and years, decades, generations. Um, so it was going to become complicated. And, and I think that was the remarkable thing about the first few days was that it seemed like in the political conversation, it at first was not complicated, uh, at least as far as the, the, the basics of, of what Canadian politicians and the Canadian Parliament felt about this. Alex, what do you think? Because we did, again, see some unusual scenes earlier this week where you had Liberal MPs on camera essentially going against uh, the government, calling for a ceasefire. The Prime Minister today is saying that the disagreements we're seeing on Parliament Hill are indicative of Canada as a whole, that this is a very divisive issue. And he says that, you know, that remains a strength of Canada, that people are voicing these different opinions. Uh, what do you think of, of what the Prime Minister is saying here about the fact that, it, you know, it can be a positive that we are seeing these various views coming out, bubbling up on the surface here in Ottawa? Um, can it be a positive? I mean, you know, I, I think it's, it's just evidence of, um, and we've heard this from MPs this week, like you said, that, that this conflict, um, for some people, it has such a, a personal, almost visceral resonance. Um, one of my colleagues did an interview with the uh, mental health and addictions minister where she didn't want to get into it, but she mentioned that her family had been personally impacted by, by the attacks in Israel. Um, we've heard from some Muslim MPs talking about how, um, I can't remember who it was, but the other day talking about how his sister was taking his niece mm -hmm. to school and was getting harassed on the street um, as a visibly Muslim woman. So I think for a lot of MPs, and we're kind of seeing it um, reflected in, in some of the things they've said publicly, in some of the divisions behind closed doors, and now in this letter, that there's a, a real emotional personal resonance here. Okay, I want to turn to another issue that's brewing this week. That is the uh, potential Alberta pension plan and the political battle over that. Uh, Nick, we saw Justin Trudeau and Daniel Smith trading open letters uh, <laughs> talking about, about this pension plan. Then we have Pierre Polyev adding his voice to the mix, saying that while he doesn't think it would be a good idea uh, for Alberta to leave the CPP. He's uh, essentially blaming the PM for attacking Alberta and, and starting all this. What do you make of kind of how we have this triangle now of the prime minister, the opposition leader, and the premier of Alberta all talking at each other? Right. Well, there was chatter online when Trudeau sent his open letter that he was trying to wedge Pierre Polyev. And it was this kind of 3D chess, you know, I'm going to take on the Alberta premier, but really, my true goal is to make the conservative leader in Ottawa uncomfortable. And if that was his goal, it maybe backfired. Maybe it didn't. I mean, this is a developing issue. And I think a lot of people are trying to just figure out where they stand on something as complex as Canada, the Canada Pension Plan and Alberta removing itself from the Canada Pension Plan. And it's, it's a complex public policy issue. But I think it was also a bit of, a, even if you ask reporters in Ottawa, what's Pierre Polyev going to say about this? You probably flip a coin and 50-50 and, and what he's going to believe. And so he... He took the tack that I will be captain in Canada. If you make me prime minister, uh, Alberta, I would, I would prefer that you stay in this national system and you, you should be comfortable in that because if I'm in charge, everything will be fine. We'll have federalism peace. He's not the first to promise that as an aspiring prime minister, but uh, that, that, was, uh, that was his overall message. Okay, and Christy, what do you think about this uh, bit of federalism then? Because 
We know uh, the Alberta government and the Trudeau government are already at odds, especially over energy. How do you see this aligning with some of those conversations? You know, I, I think that's a good question. I think, frankly, the prime minister, even in the, the framing of his letter, um, when he was going at Daniel Smith very, very directly, right? And it was an open letter, by the way, that was, you know, obviously it was an open letter and shared with a lot of people. But uh, the, the premier herself actually said, you know, essentially that it was shared with other people before it was even shared with her. And uh, he was you know, I think, yes, going at this issue of Alberta potentially removing itself from CPP, but also, um, I think, trying to get into a public discussion with Daniel Smith and, and kind of underline the differences between his policies and um, where Alberta is going. And uh, the premier shooting back and saying, you know, that there essentially will, could be legal and constitutional consequences for this. So it, it, it's it's quite the battle that has been staged. I don't, I don't know what twist comes next. Uh, but uh, certainly the, the premier is saying, you know, get, get ready for a fight because we're going to launch one against this. So, Alex, I want to get you to weigh in this because you're writing for the Toronto Star. Uh, and it's interesting that sometimes these issues are specific to just what's going on in Alberta. But here you have Premier Daniel Smith taking out ads across Canada, telling non-Albertans that, no, your pensions aren't at risk. If we go ahead with this provincial pension plan, Justin Trudeau saying the exact opposite. So we have the situation where, you know, this is an issue between Alberta and the federal government, but it is actually uh, an issue for millions of voters, millions of voters who have pensions right across Canada. You could argue that a lot of the a lot of the the fights that we've seen between Alberta and the federal government in recent years over the Impact Assessment Act, over the carbon tax, over um, the clean fuel standards over over whatever are similar to that that you know okay Alberta has their specific Alberta objections we've got the oil sands they have their own agenda um, but it has a, a huge resonance on climate policy in this case on pension policy so I think from the Toronto Star's perspective it's, it's an important national issue even though it's such an Alberta thing as well I think it does it does uh, uh, have a have a more cascading effect for sure. Okay, we have a couple moments left. I want to talk about another P word. That's pharmacare. And uh, Alex, I know you've been following this story in the wake of the NDP convention, where delegates last weekend said, "Look, this it's a universal bill or bust when it comes to the Liberal NDP confidence agreement." Now, is that the case though for Jagmeet Singh? Is that going to be a red line for him in terms of what goes forward with this agreement? So he doesn't make it really easy to, to pin that down, and I think he doesn't want to be pinned down on it. Um, he, we saw him wriggling out of that, I think it was yesterday, at his press conference or the day before. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, what is the red line real? His health critic says absolutely. Um, I think um, in speaking to uh, the liberal side, um, they also take it seriously, uh, but they're hoping to try and talk a way through this. Um, I think that there's been no sign that the Liberals are, are willing to go as far as the NDP wants, but I think both sides want the deal to survive. So there's this bit of a weird situation going on right now, and it's still not clear where it'll land, I think. Okay, Nick, weigh in on this. How do you see this seeming logjam resolving? Or maybe it won't. Well, maybe it won't. And, and there are, there's the political conversation, and then there's the policy conversation. Mm -hmm. And the Global Mail was reporting this week about whether or not Canada is actually equipped to implement a universal mm -hmm. national pharmacare program if the politicians turn it into law. And then you also have the purse strings conversation. Uh, parliamentary, this is a lot of peas. The parliamentary, <laughs> the parliamentary <laughs> budget officer right, right. put out You're a report. Laughing, it's okay. <laughs> PBO put out a report saying that this, this uh, kind of program would cost uh, billions and billions of dollars, which of course doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it is 
a question worth asking. And so how that has an impact on the political conversations and how far the liberals are willing to go, uh, it's, uh, it'll be a conversation for, well, I guess, this fall, but certainly yeah. in 2024. And Christy, I'll give you the last word on this. Uh, speaking of fall, we're expecting a fall fiscal update soon from the government. And uh, as Nick mentioned, there is the fiscal aspect of this along with the political negotiations. What are you going to be looking at? You know, I think that uh, Mark Holland, the health minister, has already kind of indicated that the, the rub here is going to be about whether Canada is actually in a financial position at this very moment to move ahead on pharmacare. However, going back to like what is stipulated in the actual working agreement between the NDP and the Liberals, it does, does talk about um, work towards a universal Pharmacare program, and it also talks about legislation, a Canada Pharmacare Act, being passed by the end of 2023. So let's say, theoretically, you know, Mark Holland saying there's conversations towards a bill. There's there's no bill yet. Uh, time is ticking. If they're actually going to put forward at least legislation to try and take a step toward getting it done, then I think the NDP is very keen to see that bill uh, be put forward right away. And again, if Mark Holland is saying conversations are happening about a bill, perhaps that indicates that, you know, this is, is going to take more time than certainly the NDP uh, would like. All right. Christy Kirkup, Alex Ballingall, Nick Taylor-Vasey. Thank you all. Thank you. The Prime Minister says Canada remains committed to an Israeli state and a Palestinian state on day 14 of the Israel-Hamas war. But Canada remains firm and steadfast in our commitment to a two-state solution. The world and the region needs a peaceful, safe, prosperous, viable Palestinian state alongside a peaceful, prosperous, democratic, uh, safe Israeli state, Israel. This is something that we have always called for. It is something we will continue to work for every day as we move forward. John Allen is a former Canadian ambassador to Israel, now with the Monk School of Global Affairs. Mr. Allen, welcome. Now, we just heard the Prime Minister say Canada is going to be firm and steadfast when it comes to a two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians, but there are less specifics on Canada's policy for the future of Gaza. What's your sense of what we're hearing from the Canadian government? Well, I'm very glad to hear that the Prime Minister is reiterating Canadian policy. Uh, it's been policy for many years. And uh, in, in my view, uh, obviously, this is uh, not the time uh, to be pushing it uh, in when I, right now, but uh, once the, the dust settles and once the pain on both sides begins to subside, and it will take time, and once we can get proper leadership um, into both Israel, getting rid of Bibi Netanyahu and having Mahmoud Abbas move on and getting some young uh, dynamic leadership uh, in the Palestinian Authority, then I think we have to really begin to... Uh, to provide a horizon for peace uh, and and to look uh, towards uh, different uh, things that each side has to do. And, and I would start with uh, stopping any settlement expansion and getting rid of illegal settlements on the uh, Israeli side. And I would, uh, you know, uh, moving towards elections, legitimate elections in, in the PA in the West Bank. Um, 
On Gaza, uh, well, we're going to have to see uh, what happens. Uh, ground invasion likely, um, uh, an attempt to eliminate the political and the military leaders of Hamas, um, difficult. Um, and then there's going to have to be some interim solution for Gaza. Uh, the PA can't go in there. They won't have credibility. I think we're going to need um, a combination of, of states to go in, perhaps, uh, and try and manage Gaza as an interim authority with the UN uh, playing a role there. Okay, you're talking about some, some long-term solutions clearly here. I do want to ask you about some of the short-term Canadian diplomacy that's happening and the fact that Canada has yet to publicly line up behind Israel and the United States on their intelligence about this week's hospital bombing in Gaza. What do you think about how the Prime Minister and the government is handling this question? Well, I'm, I'm only imagining that the Prime Minister hasn't seen the intelligence. It's very closely held. Um, uh, the uh, intelligence authorities don't want to give away too much. In other words, they don't want to give away their sources and and their uh, methods of collection, etc. So I would imagine, in a way, unfortunately, it's in the hands of the Americans and the Israelis only. Uh, it would be better if it could be shared with the international community. So um, if it's true that it was not Israel, um, and that it was truly an accident, uh, I think, uh, you know, that would go some way uh, to trying to calm the, um, the Arab street, uh, which is really riled up now. Um, it's not going to solve problems, but um, if, if it was really demonstrated uh, beyond a doubt that this was uh, a, an accident, i.e. Islamic Jihad rocket that misfired, and it wasn't Israel, then, uh, you know, that would take at least some of the pressure off. Okay, and and as we're talking, uh, there is uncertainty about the humanitarian situation in Gaza and just when supplies are actually going to cross. We're seeing the UN Secretary General at the Rafah crossing with Egypt today. He's saying uh, that the trucks that are lined up there need to get moving as, as soon as possible. What needs to happen right away on the humanitarian front? Well, I think um, the Canadian government and the Americans and, and, and anybody else that can should be putting pressure on Israel to say enough is enough. Um, I'm I, I, Imposing a siege on uh, uh, Gaza I don't think was a good idea. It was a horrible idea for the Palestinians, innocent civilians, uh, mothers, babies, uh, terrible for the hospitals. But it's a bad idea for Israel uh, because it... Uh, it demonstrates that they're not showing the appropriate uh, sympathy. We understand they have to defend themselves. We understand they feel a need to go in. But there's no need uh, for innocent Palestinians to be starving, to be without water, to be without medicine. If they don't want to send fuel in uh, because they think it's dual use, well, maybe, although hospitals do need fuel. But water, food, medicines, it seems to me there is no reason Uh, not to send that in. I know there have been allegations that Hamas has taken the goods, but the Red Cross has said they're ready to receive them. And uh, if you could throw in a ton of it, not just the the first 20 trucks, but many, many more trucks which are needed, uh, Hamas isn't going to grab it all, if, if any. 
Okay, we have a moment left, and I do want to stay with Hamas uh, with you for my last question, uh, which is about hostages. And uh, Hamas uh, reportedly saying that two of its 200 hostages are going to be released for humanitarian reasons, an American mother and daughter. Do you see any wider significance in that decision by Hamas? Well, I, I mean, two out of some 200 Americans trying to appeal uh, to America to, uh, you know, encourage Israel uh, to start negotiating. Um, uh, Hamas should be releasing all of the children, all of the women, and all of the older people. If they want to hold uh, soldiers, they can hold them. Uh, but um, they're not doing their own image any good by holding and putting the lives of hostages in danger. And these people deserve to be released. They've gone through hell. And, um, and Hamas should, should realize it's in their own interests uh, to release them. All right. Ambassador John Allen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. The U.S. president wants Congress to okay more than $100 billion in new spending. That includes more support for Israel and for Ukraine. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. In moments like these, we have to remind, we have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. The United States of America. And there is nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. Let's bring in Gordon Giffen, who was American ambassador to Canada during the Clinton administration. Ambassador Giffen, good to see you. And I want to start with the president's speech itself. He says we're at an inflection point. That was actually the first point he made. What do you make of Joe Biden's message connecting the Middle East to the war in Ukraine? I thought his message last night was inspirational. The uh, compelling part of the way he delivered uh, a, a very profound lesson and message to the American public was he spoke with personal conviction. I've seen an awful lot of political leaders make statements and speeches over the years, but you could tell the intensity with which President Biden feels this in his bones. And so he wasn't just reading a speech. He was, uh, he was delivering a sermon. Okay, now as part of that, we did hear uh, the president say he wants $105 billion, not just for Israel, not just for Ukraine, but also for border security and also measures that counter China. Now, of course, that request is coming without any speaker as we talk today. So what are the chances that this package is actually going to get passed in any kind of timely fashion? I think it'll get passed uh, in a fashion and a time frame that's sufficient to be effective. Uh, I think, and, and listen, what do I know? The House of Representatives has demonstrated that they could be uh, historically inept and disorganized, but I, I trust and, and hope that they will get that straightened out pretty quickly. Some of the aid that's needed, particularly for Israel and in some measure for Ukraine, can be sent without further congressional action. But to get to the levels that he's described in this message to Congress now, there's no doubt it takes congressional action. The Senate will pass it, I think, with some uh, deliberate speed. Um, and I do think that uh, by sometime next week, we'll be in a position to get the House to pass it. Importantly, it's got uh, border security and China-related uh, aspects to it 
to address some of the conservatives in the House to try and get uh, enough in there that would interest them that they will proceed to vote for this. Because, as you know, there's been some reticence ex uh, expressed by uh, some in the House of Representatives to further fund Ukraine. Right. And there is, as you say, that resistance to more aid for Ukraine. And there's also been opposition, not just on Capitol Hill, but elsewhere, about President Biden's strong support for Israel. Let's go back to the speech. How well do you think he made his case to Americans to try and bridge some of these divisions? Well, I think he made the case in a very compelling way. Uh, how many people, one, were watching and two, are open-minded is another question. But I think he did as good a job as you could humanly do. And as I say, having watched an awful lot of uh, big speeches by major leaders in the United States, this goes up very near the top uh, of, of speeches that I have seen. So uh, I think it made a difference. I think his speech right after the attack um, in southern Israel made a difference. I think his trip to Israel made a difference. He is showing uh, tremendous political courage. Uh, and leadership on the world stage and, and doing the kinds of things that at least I would hope the United States would do uh, to lead the free world. Now, the president throughout the week, not just last night, he was in Israel earlier, as you say, continuing to urge the Israeli government to learn from the American 9-11 experience, not to be, in his words, blinded by rage. Should he be more forceful about the death toll in Gaza and the humanitarian situation there? Well, I, I guess I, I'll leave that judgment of balance uh, to him. He's in the seat. He's the one that has the information. He is clearly trying to balance our um, unequivocal support for Israel and our unequivocal rejection of the kind of terror and atrocities committed by the Hamas terrorists uh, with the maintaining the potential for some political resolution in the long run uh, of the stress in that region. And as you know, he was bringing um, the potential of a Saudi Arabia-Israel deal to the table. No one else has done that. And I think part of the reason we saw this um, series of atrocities was the fear of some of these radical groups in the Middle East that that Biden was actually going to create the kind of coalition that could give us peace for a long time. Okay, we have just a moment left, and I want to pick your diplomatic brain uh, about Canada uh, before you leave. Uh, of course, the U.S. is lining up behind Israel on the evidence uh, about this week's hospital bombing in Gaza. Canada has not yet done so publicly. The prime minister says he wants to be careful before reaching a conclusion. What's your reaction uh, to how Canada has been responding uh, this week and throughout this crisis? Well, I, I agree with the proposition of being careful, but events are transpiring pretty quickly. And you don't have a luxury of thinking about it for too long. Uh, presumably, he's uh, getting the benefit of uh, Canadian intelligence, and the Canadian intelligence services are among the top in the world. So uh, the desire to get that information is makes sense to me. It's reasonable. But uh, I, I do think, in the case of the United States at least, our intelligence services are pretty confident. It's clear from what the president had to say. And I, I, I think we have been decisive 
uh, in the face of rapidly changing events. And if the bad guys don't see resolution in our approach, I fear it invites further tragedy. Ambassador Gordon Giffen, really appreciate your thoughts on all this. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show for Friday. For everyone here at CPAC, I'm Andrew Thompson. Thanks for watching Primetime Politics. Good night.